0: This episode of Creativity in Captivity is sponsored by the Curtis Theater in Brea, California, presenting Don Reed's The Never Too Late Show on Saturday, May 11th. Tickets are available at the Curtis Theater website. Get ready for insight and inspiration on the creative process from an array of artists, writers, and visionaries on May 9th, when season seven of Creativity in Captivity kicks off. In the meantime. Please enjoy over 150 episodes hosted by Pat Hazel with a stable of creative guests in our listening lounge at creativityandcaptivity.fun. This is Creativity and Captivity, I'm Pat Hazel. Today, visiting with an extraordinary artist, filmmaker, and photographer that was born in Armenia, raised in France, and currently enjoys a life between New York City and Paris. She's a writer and director of four short films, three feature films, and the publisher of the book A.H. Allen, a loving tribute to poet Allen Ginsberg. She shares why the flower is her ultimate muse, tells us about her unique approach to NFTs, and explains how movie making is just like being a mom. Coming up is my conversation with the wildly creative Anaconda. That spark of electricity, a skipping stone that sets you free.
1: You're captive to a mystery, the curse of creativity. I'm here. I made it.
0: Yes, you made it. In the world of Zoom and telephone, the making it is a little bit easier than it used to be, huh?
1: Yeah, it's wonderful. I'm I'm a big computer person, so everything that uh, technology provides us, I'm really into. How much does creativity inform your life? I think everything, really. I mean, being creative since I was a kid, I think a lot of it was with sight and sound. You look, you listen, you take it all in. The world we live in is the greatest creation, so the, the people are the greatest creation. And then very early on, my dad installed a of books and art my mom, art and music. We were coming from artistic backgrounds already in the family. So it's always been part of it. I used to have these old records that we would get from Soviet Armenia. They were albums, the classic with a the box. They would be very bare sleeves with nothing because obviously uh, money wasn't rolling around. It wasn't slick, but there would be all these Bach eight piece boxes and I would just play them on my record player. So I mean, really anything from the moment I was really young, listening to fairy tales, which in themselves are unbelievably creative, to then music, literature, theater, all the arts have always fascinated me. So I would say my whole life has been fed by creativity.
0: You mentioned just before we started that you work visually so much. You work in film and photography and art, and that you enjoy the stimulation sometimes of listening or being inspired by things that you're hearing while you're working in your photography. Tell me a little bit about what that does to you in terms of the connection in your brain to be inspired by something else while you're creating.
1: I don't know if I'm going to make it clear, but I'm going to try. When I do the visual process, I sometimes have a vision or a dream or an inspiration, and I want to kind of encapsulate that. I've learned the older I get that it's how it starts, but it's pretty much never how it ends. It's just the the breath that gets you in. So by learning to abandon control, which is something I've had to do with photography, because as a filmmaker, first as an actor, it would be a complete abandon of control. And to the point of, danger because you had to be so raw and so like a sponge and so exposed, which I felt was an amazing creative tool, but also kind of risky in terms of me as a human being. Going from that to Directing, which is something that I've always had a kind of a controlling personality. I'm the oldest of three and the only girl in the kind of running the household. So I always wanted to control everything because I felt like an actor can't be a certain way if he doesn't dress that way, if he doesn't wear that kind of makeup, doesn't live in that home, listen to that kind of music. And I thought for that, I needed to be both in charge of art direction as well as story, as well as character. So that brought me to filmmaking, which was wonderful, and I still do it. But filmmaking is so much control and so many people that you never get that much to that trippy place, mm-hmm. that kind of like abandoned place where I felt like as an actor, you do. you 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 lose yourself in a scene And if you're good, usually the tech and the crew just applauds at the end or you made them cry and you're like, yes, I nailed it. And you have that ability to, I guess, control differently through emotions. And so what I wanted to do was find a way to abandon myself completely to creativity, lose control and lose expectations and really go at it. And I found that in photography. And so there's something beautiful about this idea of being guided by outside forces that take you to a land of imaginary beauty, that eventually you try your best to contextualize within your work. I find the same feeling happens when I listen to, obviously, music, yes, but also to audiobooks and podcast. They have this kind of old storytelling way to them that just like takes you into its arm like a mother reading to her child and then transports you into another world of imagination and creativity. The two make a lot of sense. Plus, I like to get a lot done at once. So this way I get to practice and learn. And I also think that, like, I was one of the first people to buy into Audible. Like, I was a big fan right away. When I raised my daughters, they always had story tapes at home. So it's something that's like always, I suppose, my way of marrying the two things that fascinates me most, reality and fantasy. And I see them equally important in my life.
0: Well, I think you bring up an interesting point, which is story. Because even in the final print of a photograph, a story is being told or being understood maybe differently from the viewer than was intended by the photographer. But there is something happening on how you compose that picture, what moment that is, how the lighting happens. There's an innate part of our storytelling as a human being that wants to figure things out. They want to know how did this come about? Who are these two people in this picture? What is this relationship? Why is that? Person has that expression and the other one seems disinterested. We are making up a story even from a single image. So I think that you being a storyteller as a writer and as a filmmaker probably informs your photography in a pretty interesting way.
1: You're very correct because I actually go as far as looking at my flowers. I title them often portraits because I do see a narrative behind each flower I photograph. And the narrative evolves throughout the day when the flower ages or not. But I do see a spiritual soul behind each and every one of these flowers. And I do hear a story and I do receive a a correspondence between the flower and I. So I actually have a tendency to even see that in inanimate objects, I believe, have ears and watch us and see the things we do and approve or disapprove. So yeah, I think I'm pretty obsessed with stories in general. <laughs> you
0: mentioned the flowers. So let's talk a little bit about your collection, the Tulips, 1637. This is a collection of floral portraits. And you did that in collaboration with what you said was an anonymous collective of cypherpunks. What does that mean? How does that collaboration take place?
1: These gentlemen were already really interested to compare the tulip bubble to the crypto era and bring it into the crypto era. And they had this idea of doing a collection called Tulip 1637. They approached my studio manager, Michael. It made perfect sense. It was a perfect fit because I'd been photographing flowers for almost a decade. So they were like, well, this lady obviously does flowers. Let's ask her to shoot the tulip. That was my first entry into the world of NFTs. But Again, like I said, when I said that I love computers, I really mean it. I have about 19 computers. Uh, Right now in this room, I'm talking to you through Michael's computer, but I'm staring at one, two, three, four, five computer screens. All the others are folded there. Like Basically, the moment filmmaking changed to digital, I was a film person initially, but the minute it changed to digital, I had to accept that. And then the minute I accepted it, I basically dived into it in a really big way, editing, editing sound, picture, coloring, et cetera, et cetera. So back to the NFT world, they asked me if I would be interested. I started shooting immediately. This was about like March, April. I knew nothing about NFTs. And in May, the collection was uploaded on OpenSea, which is one of the big platforms. And frankly, I'm completely hooked. And this is what I do now. I've joined another platform who's been very kind to me in terms of supporting my work, which is foundation. And I'm very productive. I work in the day and I work at nights. So I have a lot of JPEGs and I have a collection of about a million photographs already. So that's how Tulip came about. And it was the beginning of my journey into NFTs, something I find myself. Is a perfect fit.
0: Let me take a sidebar. You mentioned NFTs, and I know it's a non fungible token, but I think our listener may or may not be privy to exactly what it is and what the dialogue is about it.
1: Think contract, blockchain, cryptocurrency. Which, in extension, to go back to Tulip, what was interesting in what we did with Tulip and has never been done before is we have created a vanity address with my name. And this has not yet been done. Every token begins with A, and 11 one, one stands for N, and 0 stands for O. So we created Anaconda in letters and numbers, and every country, every Token has that address, so this is one of the things that I don't think the world has yet picked up on in terms of what Tulip has accomplished. We are the first ones to do that, and that's part of what excited me about that collection. Is it presented a technical challenge as well as a artistic challenge, which was like focus on tulips, tulips, tulips only. Think of a JPEG that is encrypted on the blockchain that is not reproducible, therefore is unique because it's got its own set of information attached to it. If you are the owner of that token, you're welcome to either keep or sell, but basically it's forever stuck in stone that this is yours. Why the vanity address was also interesting, which makes Tulip more difficult to mint, because we have to spend much more minting hours in order to achieve All the newer tulips, eventually we won't be able to because it would take 150 years to do, say, tulip 45. So therefore, they're rare. What all of this creates, which is something that the art art world has often been lacking, is authenticity as well as provenance, ownership, certification, And I truly believe that eventually every single thing will be NFT. Our passports will be an NFT. The deeds to our house will be an NFT. It's just such a convenient, reliable way to track what's what. So that's the best I can do. I'm still just a photographer, but that's my best way of explaining it.
0: But the data that's attached to it then is, it's the proof of work. It means that the person who owns it can license it and do that sort of thing, whatever they want.
1: Well, licensing rights are a little bit different depending on the projects, even though there's a lot of discussion today in terms of like, you know, especially in the case of photographer releasing license rights. Part of what's so revolutionary and the people behind these technologies is they want a very clean, transparent situation out there. And it's true that a lot of these copyright issues that are attached to works are complicated. So in some cases, you get the ownership as well as the licensing rights. In other cases, you only have the ownership, you can print it, but you cannot reproduce it for monetary whatever you call it. Yeah.
0: So let's talk about the tulip as a flower. I just did a quick Google and I saw that the tulip was symbolizing, at least it recognizes perfect love and a deep love. Like It had a significance that if you were giving somebody tulips, it was a sign of some deep, unconditional love. How much did you know about the tulip before you started shooting that specific
1: flower? Not that much. And frankly, I don't even feel like I know enough about it still because so much of my time is consumed capturing images that reading and some other more kind of educational activities are taking a setback. But I would say that one thing that's really interesting is when the bulbs did arrive in Holland, the same people who collected tulips were the people who were collecting art. The concept of a collector, interestingly enough, back then, those two joined. Mm. I think that the passion that artists have for art is great, but nothing competes with the creation that nature has, has accomplished itself. So I think tulips had this like interesting natural and artificial aspect to them, especially those that had the various streaks of colors and were given individual names. But frankly, I have about five or six or seven books about tulips and tulip mania that are waiting for me to have like a real boy <laughs> to go through. And I can't wait to do that because I'm sure I'll be tripping for sure. Yeah, I always thought the rose was the concept of, of love. but
0: Well, they may have different nuances, but it was just really interesting. I find the tulip so vibrant. That's what I found when I was skipping across the internet, that E.M. Forrester, who was known for Howard's End, He refers to the tulips as a tray of jewels. Mm -hmm. It's just got so much more to it, its shape and how short-lived it is. It's sort of like a butterfly season or something, you know, it's a very short period of time.
1: Yeah, he might have been part of another life back then in Holland when uh, they were really like, that's how people describe them. They were like the most brilliant of jewels.
0: Yeah, and so many artists have focused on flowers at some point. And this is in the older times, people like Matisse and so forth, they spent yes. a lot of time painting flowers. Yes,
1: yes. That's a discussion I had early on when I started to do photography because, well, both as a woman, as a person who's been an immigrant twice, I don't want to say I'm a tomboy because it's not a 100% true, may maybe 50% true, but... One of the anxiety was like, I knew I wanted to do flower, but one thing that I was really allergic to was this idea of being perceived as cute. Ah. You know, when you're a woman and you jive with flowers, it's like, okay, so they're going to think I'm cute and I'm not cute. And I don't think flowers are cute. I think flowers are hardcore. They start with a grain. They have to like weather the weather. They have to push and and survive and they're really tough they're really in that sense really interesting and dare I say really feminine in that way as well not in the way that's cute but in the way that's strong.
0: I agree with you there's such an amazing beauty and fragility you can walk through and trample it but for it to get there for that stem to hold that Bulb up, and for it to survive the elements and to survive the animals, it really, it really has a, a long journey. It does to have that
1: stately, wispy manner in the wind. That was one of the early concern, but I was like annoyed by it. But it wouldn't stop me, and I was like, I don't care. These people don't get it. Do they realize the best artists were men who painted flowers and photographed too? When you think of, say, Maplethorpe or all the early photography just the palette of color that they offer. So even in early photography, the Lumière brothers were of course going to photograph flowers and say gardens. So I stuck with it because they're really inspiring and they're really beautiful. And we're often as human beings complaining about what we have and don't have. And one thing we've always had that's existed since prehistoric time is flowers. And There's an abundance on it. It's endless. They grow from concrete as well as from a field. So yeah, it was kind of my hat to flowers in many ways.
0: Well, Henry Matisse did say that there are always flowers for those who want to see them.
1: Yeah.
0: It doesn't cost anything to go out and look at flowers. doesn't. Anybody can see your many collection of photographed flowers on your Instagram. Tell me about your daily discipline of producing images I understand you have sort of a digital diary of inspiration that you're always shooting new things and putting it up on Instagram in some ways.
1: It changes throughout the years. You know, there's evolutions. Like I used to work a lot at night and then I discovered that my work a couple of years ago was responding better to daylight. So I started for a couple of years shooting more into daylight. I'm getting back into night these days. A lot to create some more atmospheric lighting because then therefore it becomes electrical. I wake up and I have a house. I'm lucky to have a house, which is an entire studio, really, because it's filled with, like I said, computer cameras and props for the photography, which includes boards, vases, dried flowers, plastic flowers, paper flowers, because I do artificial as well as the real ones. But I'm like Grandma Moses. I like to work in my bedroom. <laughs> I basically jump up a bed, make my first coffee and start my first setup. There's a window in my room that has the perfect quality of light. The table set there. I know how to work it. So I start like that. Then comes coffee number two. And then I kind of like evolve into the day. NFT world is a bit newer for me. So a lot of the Twitter thing, which is where NFT community really is active rather than Instagram, where you give your images for free on Twitter, you're actually promoting works you're selling, which is super cool for us artists. So Twitter takes up a lot of time. And then now Discord, which I swore I was not going to join, but finally got in. Because people whose work I love have kind of dragged me along with them. So a lot of that. And then there'll be a break. I don't like eating in the daytime because it knocks me out. So I work all day. And then around six or seven is celebration time. That's where I have my first glass of wine and I start to cook a meal or take out or maybe go out, depending on what I do. Then I come home and chances are I work a second shift, which is more the night shooting. And it's a different feeling and obviously a different sensibility as well.
0: It must be just glorious to wake up to that perfect light.
1: I love it, yeah. And it's perfect at any weather, because the way it caresses the petals or the flowers, it's just like, sometimes it's gloomy, but it looks really good. And other times it's bright and you have to tame it down. I feel very fortunate to have found my ikigai.
0: It's interesting that weather can be our director of photography in some ways. You could say, hey, I'm setting the light this way.
1: That's what's great about accepting the journey as it comes. When I used to be an actor, I remember one of the things that I found really super exciting was when I was working on auteur films in France and they didn't have tons of money and the scene was written for a sunny day and suddenly it rained, you had to go with it. I thought that those unexpected elements were actually what excited me most. That's when I started to realize I really didn't like rules, and I didn't like following rules at all. I just like to be able to be like a live performer in my own capsule, which brings me to a question I have for you. I'm standing by. Why in captivity?
0: Oh, it's interesting. It wasn't intended to mean that we were stuck. It was the idea that we have you captive for one hour and we get to study anaconda under our microscope. Then we let her back out into the wild because I find so many really interesting, creative people work in some of their own mysterious world under their own muse and ways of going and it really, it's only when we come together to discuss creative process, can we find out it would be only better if I was able to go sort of shadow you while you're filming or take a look and watch you respond to light and to coffee and to whatever the stimulants are. So we, we didn't really name this as a way of us feeling all sequestered. Mm-hmm. It was just a, a moment of study but it also happened to fall during this time where the whole world sort of shut down. It's one of those names that I love the rhythm of it with creativity, but I don't love that it sounds like we're stuck because I don't think we're ever stuck. I think that this dialogue is a product of me thinking of other ways to use my voice when all the venues were shut down. I think that's the way it happens for artists or creative people is that they, just like a flower, they Mm -hmm. seek out the light. They turn to where the sun is coming, and they find roots where the water can be. They'll do it if they have to make a shift or make a change. A good question, a valid question.
1: I was afraid everybody asked
0: it before. No, they... no. Okay, cool. Not at all. But I do have a question for you, and this has to do with Allen Ginsberg. You published a book as a salute to him, and there are many other authors and artists and people that contribute. Tell me what your experience was like doing that publishing, and also give me names of some of the contributors in terms of what you made selections of.
1: Okay, so some of the contributors were Arthur Miller, Gus Sant, Yoko Ono. I
0: read Jack Kerouac.
1: Well, Kerouac, obviously, but who wasn't alive, so I wasn't totally communicating with him, say, directly. Yeah, so there's a great list of, I think, 36 or 38 artists. We were friends. Uh, my ex and I were friends with Ginsberg. And towards the end of his life, I always had an interesting rapport with Alan because he had been friend with Sergei Parajanov, the Georgian-Armenian filmmaker, who had been arrested a number of times for homosexuality, et cetera, et cetera. And Parajanov was also very close to my uncle, my mother's brother, who composed the music for the very famous film by Parajanov, which is uh, The Color of Pomegranate. So my whole life, I've always heard about Parajanov and heard stories and about him. And when we met Alan, he was impressed that I was Armenian and that I knew who Parajanov was. The time I met Alan, I'm, my children were little, and I was very hands-on, both raising my children and helping my husband in his career, as well as performing in short films, because at the time, I didn't even speak English really well. So I was basically starting brand new here in the States. So all these like things were happening, and Alan was always somebody who was really very much pushing me, giving me Books and telling me, you know, you need to do something that's just your thing. And towards the end of his life, he knew it was things weren't well, and he would call me constantly to come over and visit him at this new loft he had bought because I think he had made a million dollar sale to one of the big universities of Holy papers. So he had bought this loft, you know, just brand new and finally moved out of his joint. And he would call me and I'd be busy between auditions or shoots. And he'd be like, are you hungry? And I'd be like, not really, you know, and he would be pissed. He's like, I made fruit soup for you. I made fruit soup. So last three months of his life, I would spend a lot of time one-on-one, just he and I. I think that he had a... I don't want to get too much into the history of Alan, but he had a very difficult childhood with a mother who was very complex. I think that the women and the Slavic history of my past, the Armenian, the all of that, we kind of soul-wise matched really well. I couldn't believe he had never seen Pasolini films, so I... Brought him a videotape at the time and plugged it in, and we watched this Pasolini film together. And yeah, we just hang out at the loft, and I felt like it was really important to him. Then he fell really ill, and at the time when he fell really ill, the hospital, we brought him back home, and there a whole bunch of friends gathered: Gregory Corso, Patti Smith, writers, painters, Francesco Clemente, and we were part of the group that was there. And my ex-husband was painting his deathbed portrait after Alan passed, and I was doing his deathbed photographs, which are until now unpublished, but are part of a project that I want to do, like as part of an autobiographical that would work. Long story short, great encounter in my life, very inspiring, very loving, very challenging and fun. He was really funny. Brilliant and funny is always an amazing combo. There was an accidental meeting where the estate said, you know, they wanted to do a tribute book and I was there by accident. And for some reason, I just gave in a couple ideas and they were like, well, why doesn't she do it? And I was like, oh, I'm honored. Thanks a lot. And all that stuff, not realizing what it meant to raise the funds and raise the funds and raise the funds. And frankly, no one was interested, not in the publishing world, not in the art world. No one was interested. And one afternoon, I was sitting down in the hallway of my daughter's school, picking her up. And somebody said to me, what are you up to? And I told her I was doing that. That same afternoon, they called me and they said, we want to give you the money to do the book.
0: Oh, that's fascinating. It was just kismet, just that moment in time.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And so I started working like crazy, uh, really like crazy, day and night, doing this, gathering all these people. There's eight different processes of printing in the book. It's hands-on. So I wanted a book that was made in the old, like 18th, 19th century style of bookmaking, but would look so modern that even today, frankly, I feel today the book looks like I just published it yesterday morning. And that was what I was after. All the artwork in the book are original. They're mounted and they're all signed, for which I actually collected the signatures all over the world. Either send the boxes, freaking out, they would get lost, or went to the artist and had him sign one by one, 250 copies. What was interesting is making that book as a young woman and a mother and an actress and a foreigner... And a lover of the arts, but I think because of my lack of being able to communicate properly in English and share anything that was going on in my mind, or, you know, it was easy to dismiss, oh, you're an actress, you know, type of thing. That was the moment that it just became very clear to me that if you can do this, there's no reason you can't direct. I
0: see. So this preceded your doing the short films.
1: It was really at the eve of it because it was really obvious that I could undertake an army of people. And even if they didn't know where it was going, I knew where it was going and I got it exactly where I wanted it to go. And all of them were in awe of the final result. And I thought... I have two objectives. A, I want to make Alan proud. I know he's watching because he was picky, man. He took apart the book that the Whitney Museum put out. There was an exhibit at the Whitney about the beat generation. I cracked up. He gave it to me. He corrected every single word they had in their intro because he's like, you don't say this and that's wrong and this, this, and this. So I knew he was a tough cookie. So I was like, is this okay? Is this cool? Do you like this? I mean, this is pretty grand. Oh, because he was really funny too. He had these things where, uh, because the book is very luxurious. I remember one of the last visits I went to him. He's like, hey, look what Bono got me. And I was like, okay, what did he get you? And he pulls out this copy of Lady with a Fan. And he's like, guess how much it costs? I'm like, I don't know. He's like, I checked. And I said, Alan, that's rude. You don't look to see how much a gift was. He's like, well, I need it for insurance purposes, you know? And it was like 300, something like, I I forgot the exact number, but he's like, 3,800 bucks. Can you believe it? Isn't that cool? And so I thought, oh man, I mean, it better make a really great freaking book so that when he's watching from above, it's like he's blown away. And it was really my... Guiding light, I remember one day my daughter coming down saying, Mom, do you love Allen Ginsberg more than us? Oh. (laughs) I said, no, honey, I'm sorry. And it's like, it was a lot of work. It was really I believe one of my greatest achievements, I learned a lot. I was really happy to honor all the artists in the book and give them something that made them feel like they were part of something beautiful. And it was an interesting passage for me in my time, you know, because that's when I said, oh, okay, so really I am kind of like, I do kind of like being in control of the vision, of the look, of the cast and of the ensemble shortly after that i was doing a short film as an actor and some guy says to me hey i mean you if you can act like that and you can make a book like that have you ever thought of directing and that was very shortly after the book came out and i said oh yeah 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 sure i sure have and he's like well do you have a script and i said absolutely absolutely and i didn't have one i went home that day and I said, I need a script like now. I scrolled through a bunch of short stories, came across a short short story by Chekhov that really rocked my world. And I wrote to the guy right away and I said, this is the first short film I want to direct. And he's like, okay, done. And so I got a big, big budget for a short, did really well. And from then on, I was hooked on you know, being on that side of the situation and, and bringing people together and talent together.
0: I think you're sharing a very inspirational story though to anybody in transition, to an actor that wants to be a director, to a writer that wants to be a producer, Any that it is absolutely possible. You didn't realize when you were publishing that work that you were a producer and you were a director. You were taking on all of those roles of delegating, of coordinating, of logistics, of expense, of the artistic uh, vision of the book. That's exactly what you were doing. And so in a way, you accelerated your learning curve to what a director needs to know. You you need to lose sleep over a project that you want to see the outcome be a certain way. And it's not all about control. It's about being a visionary, communicating what you're seeing, getting that collaboration, because you're collaborating a lot of people when you make a film. The independence you have behind a, camera in your bedroom shooting a flower must be the exact opposite, surrounded by a circus of people waiting for direction. What do we do now? What time? When do we, how much money do we have to work with? Those seem to be complete opposites to me.
1: They are, they are. And it's interesting because they tap into different strengths within us. Like, flash forward, because I always felt like, okay, movie making is just like being a mom, you know, you're just <laughs> running. Oh, that's it. You're just everybody's mom here. And it's like, no, yes, no, <laughs> yes. And then my kids were grown and gone, and my ex was gone, and my life was really in shambles because I never imagined it going that way. I thought I was going to be the Sunday lunch type of person, which is kind of naive, if you ask me, because I was already pretty intensely involved whenever I was into anything creative. But anyway, the hardships that, that happened then were valuable lessons that also showed me that part of the frustration as an artist, as an actor was that I remember very young, because I started acting around the age of 17, and I remember very young thinking, man, it really sucks, because as an actor, you can't do this like, oh, darn, I feel really creative today. I'm going to wake up and act. (laughs) That's one art form. You can't do that.
0: No, you sit around wishing to be picked.
1: And that was before YouTube and stuff like that, too. So there was really you had to sit around and wish to be picked. So I was like, man, what a tough job that is. That sucks. And so all of a sudden I'm like older, wiser, having to learn from my mistakes, having to learn from my non-mistakes. And this intimacy happened where I just didn't really want to see people. I didn't want to deal with people complaining about makeup. I didn't want to communicate that much. I wanted to look within and better myself. And that's when I came up with my first works that were like part of this collection called Reflections, which a lot of them involved shooting through my shower door or windows or mirrors, but at times not. And they were just, say, my personal reflections. So, yeah, I kind of became hooked on that process. And also the, I like to move fast. So I like stuff to happen. And so the idea that you could get instant gratification, you didn't have to wait for the to watch the reels and you didn't have to like edit for three, four years because I'm like slow and picky. And so you didn't have to do that. So I did shoot two films that I have in the can that have not been edited. One of them I shot in Armenia, with multiple cameras. It's highly a musical in some ways. I have about 400 hour footage for that. And I shot a documentary on my leading lady who's been through a lot of my work. And I have about 200 hours on that. They're staring at me right now. I'm still very flowers. And then the NFT world like took me like a stream running through it as well. So
0: I did see you were doing a documentary called "Say La Vie there about Alexandra Stewart. And she yeah. uh, she appeared in a previous movie of yours. Uh, was it in, which one was it in? In Merry Christmas?
1: She's in Merry Christmas, which, by the way, is on Amazon Prime. And is a very rowdy comedy, which I shot completely improvised in two and a half days with multiple cameras.
0: And was that your story? Did you write that in terms of the improvisation, the structure?
1: Yeah, I gave the actors a Bible of their character. It was all based on the anagram, you know, where we supposedly are each one of these say, eight personality types and also this concept of murder mystery game. I really wanted to do an ensemble cast. Sure. So they each got a mega binder about themselves. They had to abandon all their personal belonging at the hotel when we picked them up. And from then on, they had the character's suitcase and for two and a half days, we never stopped shooting.
0: That's great. And for the for the listener, we refer to a Bible that is a study of their character and the nature of what they need to do and behave. It sort of gives them an understructure to work with. Here's what I like. I like about the description, though, about Merry Christmas, because I'm a student of when people pitch something, how do you make this short explanation of your film interesting? And Merry Christmas is a group of people who are escaping from Manhattan, and there's this three-day murder mystery in rural Pennsylvania. But in a very short moment in the description, it talks about the twist. Things change when a mute stranger shows up at the back door on Christmas Day. That sentence is a sentence that everybody should take note of, because it's so specific, like, wait, what? They didn't come to the door, they came to the back door. And they came on Christmas Day and they're mute. So what what do they know that we want to find out? Like, it's so exciting to me. That's as exciting as a trailer to me when all of the words are in the right place for you to go, oh, I want to hear this story. I'm sure I'm going to be at Amazon Prime. It may not be my Christmas Eve or Christmas Day watch, but I will watch it over the holidays. Cool,
1: cool. Yeah, I'm born on Christmas Day. Oh, you are? so. Yeah, I am on December 25th. The real genesis of that film, outside of the fact that I really wanted to work with an ensemble cast for my love of like actors, theater, you know, and... And I used to be a clown for a while. So everything commedia dell'arte, circus, theater, it all speaks to me. It's part of my, again, my imaginary, you know, life. And that's not so imaginary after all. So born on Christmas Day and living in a kind of a privileged world, ending up at a lot of dinner parties where I like be scratching my head, thinking I can't believe these people are saying such horrible things about other human beings and behaving so badly, and remembering that I felt actual pain for some of the conversations taking place amongst these so-called elite, who would go as far as take advantage of like the the person who was serving them food, knowing they didn't speak English, they would say the most horrifying things. And I knew that someday I would have to just get back at it and do like a good farce, a good satire. And, you know, I'm a big fan of Moliere. I'm a big fan of satire in general. I just think it's really important, you know, Les Fables de la Fontaine, de la Fontaine, the way the court was seen by the artists and writers of the time, which is like, hey, okay, we get it. You're wearing silk, but underneath it all is not necessarily so glossy. I knew that that was something that was really important to me. And so that's kind of how it began. I wanted a film that was that had spiritual undertones without ever talking about it, really. And I never told the actors to talk about it. The only one who knew was my producer, who's my friend. I met him as an actor. I was in one of his short films when he was a film student. And we basically stayed on France for 20 years. He's produced everything I've done. What they didn't know is that we had this character that didn't drive up with them that shows up and who's homeless, who actually essentially hadn't even washed or, you know, done anything to himself for three days, really looked homeless. I had his clothes buried in my backyard. My daughter never saw because the dirt was covering it, and she's in the movie, and so she never even knew.
0: That's intriguing. So the improvisational aspect was that you actually, as a director, created a scenario where they actually had to deal with the very thing that you wanted them to encounter.
1: Yes. yes, they go to a bed and breakfast ran by real professionals who run the bed and breakfast. So you already are dealing with something I love, a combination of actors and non-actors. Because sometimes non-actors are way more interesting, I think. So I had that, and then in there came this element of surprise with this man who basically appears and disappears, and is really the message of the film. It was very badly received by the press. I think partly because, I don't know, they just took it first degree, they didn't understand. I made those people say horrible things. (laughs) I checked it with African-American friends of mine who said, no, we know people talk like that about us. We think it's good you show it. But back then it was even more complicated because it was PC without even being PC because they didn't really care. It was really badly received by the classic press but I'm very proud of it. The actors are very proud of it. I think it's a film that's going to, with time, also show us that, interestingly enough, those character types that are very commedia dell'arte like, very stock characters sure. the doctor, the lawyer, it's eternal. It doesn't change.
0: I'm not a fan of stereotyping or judging people based on their cover or any of that kind of thing. And yet, sometimes they earn the stereotype. You just go, oh, That guy with those vanity license plates, where of course he's the jerk that's yelling at me. Sometimes people become the very thing they don't want to become Mm -hmm. because the trappings are in everything else. I know that you wanted spiritual undertones. I think you told the secret, which is that you gave every one of them a Bible.
1: (laughs) No, the real spiritual undertone was this idea of selflessness. So it could be Christmas, it could be any other day. Ironically, the bed and breakfast where we shot was decorated for Christmas year round. Oh,
0: that's awesome.
1: She really was into Christmas. But no, the concept was this whole idea around whether it be religion or being spiritual, but in a, in a very kind of a commercial way about goodness and caring and all that stuff. And I wanted to like really simplify the whole thing and take a very raw approach and very non-fussy shot in two and a half days. So really no time to breathe, no time to do anything, but just go with it.
0: That's awesome because I think what you do in a situation like that as a director is you get the actor's state of awareness where suddenly there's a mirror reflecting themselves back to them, but they're in character. So you see a little bit of the actual actor and a little bit of the character That's sort of a magical trick that you used as a director, which was fascinating.
1: Thank you. And watching him on a big screen, you're like, oh, so great. He's not acting. She's not acting. She's just talking. She's just smirking. She's just doing this confused look, but it's just really confused look. And yeah, I wanted to get away from some of the... Hollywood plastic that wasn't plastic enough for me because I love classical Hollywood and big movies, Ben Hur, I mean, you know, the big shebangs, I love those films. But I wanted to watch actors not act. I didn't want to be manipulated. I just wanted to get lost in it with them at the moment. So it achieved that.
0: Kudos to you for that, taking this story and those actors on that journey and all having that chapter to look back at. I would encourage the person listening now to look at Merry Christmas on Amazon Prime and also to go to your Instagram, which is anna.condo, and they can see your work there. I appreciate you sharing your cultural background, your stories, and the emotional resonance of your work with the flowers. You're a really interesting person. Thanks, Anna, for spending some time with me today.
1: Thank you, Pat.
0: Thanks for joining us today. Take a moment to subscribe and we will hold your seat for more creative conversation and a weekly spark of inspiration. Our show is produced by Sweetwood Creative under the skilled producership of Amanda Rosenberg with sound editing lovingly provided by Delilah Lovejoy. Our original music theme was written and sung by Maya Sharp, with additional production support and sanity provided by Casey Franco, Tony Deo, Tucker Hazel, and Diane Johansson. Please feel free to share your input or dash off a review on social media to help grow our creative community. You can find us on Instagram at Pat Hazel with two L's or visit our website at creativityincaptivity.fun. you heard that right. It's .fun because .com is just two .com and .fun is so much more fun. Ciao for now. Staring at an empty page Stepping on a ghostlit stage, a circus of uncertainty. You're called a creativity. La 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 la. La 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 la.